We find ourselves in Cambridge, England. The year is 1798, and cleric and scholar Thomas Robert Malthus is getting ready to publish a controversial piece of writing. It's an essay that will go down in history as one of the most important pieces of writing ever produced about perhaps the most important topic we face on this planet, how we feed ourselves. Thomas Malthus was obsessed with population data. He collected figures on births, deaths, age of marriage, and childbearing. He then poured all of that thinking into a piece of writing that featured, quite frankly, a less than catchy title, an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society, with remarks on the speculations of Mr. Godwin, Mr. Condorcet, and other writers. In subsequent editions, Malthus did shorten the title a bit, but the central thesis of his essay stayed the same. The people of planet Earth are doomed to an inevitable life of misery and vice. His reasoning for this less-than-cheery outlook? Food supply would never be able to keep up with the increasing demands of an exploding population. As a result, Malthus predicted there would be widespread death caused by famine, war, and disease. Only then would the disparity between population and food supply be brought back into equilibrium. While we still face food challenges, Malthus's apocalyptic predictions were clearly wrong. But how did we do it? And what did Malthus get wrong? In a nutshell, he failed to account for human ingenuity. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. Our country has grown from an uncharted wilderness to an area of great wealth and productivity. This is the country of big beef herds and vast ranches. It is thanks to the hundreds of farmers throughout the country. Out at daybreak, breakfast at the chuck wagon. The greatest of America's riches. The story of agricultural innovation is as old as the story of civilization itself. The earliest evidence of plant cultivation goes back 23,000 years in the so-called Fertile Crescent of eastern Turkey, Iraq, and southwestern Iran. It was in the same area that cows, sheep, goats, and pigs were first domesticated about 10,000 to 13,000 years ago. Historians refer to this transition from a society based on hunting and gathering to one centered on farming as the first agricultural revolution. The second agricultural revolution coincided with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in 18th century England. There, the population tripled between 1750 and 1850. This was the same nightmare scenario that inspired Thomas Malthus to conclude that population growth would quickly outpace our ability to feed ourselves. But while the farm population was shrinking as a result of rural population being lured into cities, 
food production actually increased. The introduction of high-yield crops like wheat and barley and new methods of crop rotation and the invention of machinery for cutting and threshing grain all led to dramatic increases in productivity. At the same time, in the United States, farmers were beginning to move west, looking for more land and a better life. They brought with them the equipment they had used on farms in New England, including plows made of wood or cast iron. But it turned out that what worked well in the east was not so effective on the western frontier. One of the first people to notice this was a young blacksmith who left his home in Vermont and settled in Illinois in the 1830s. His name was John Deere. Neil Dulstrom is a corporate archivist for the John Deere Company and a Deere biographer. He, as a blacksmith, would have repaired plows. He would have designed and, and, and created farm implements, you know, pitchforks and chains and along with pots and pans and, you know, shoeing horses and all of those things. But he would have been very aware of the struggles that farmers were having plowing Midwestern soil, which, which was, was very heavy compared to the soils out east, which tend to be a little sandier. So you can imagine out there plowing, you're behind your horse or your oxen. Every five or ten steps, you've got to bend over and you've got to scrape all the soil off of your plow and then get going again. One day in 1837, John Deere was at the local steel mill when he saw a broken sawmill blade. He had an idea. If soil stuck to plows made of cast iron and wood, what about a plow made of steel? He discovered that soil wouldn't stick to a steel plow if he could shape it in such a way that would allow the soil to roll off. Getting the shape of the plow just right was a huge challenge for Deere. So, too, was finding the steel. The, the biggest business challenge was, was really raw materials. And uh, he built that first steel plow. He built two more in 1838, so uh, a whopping total of three in the first two years. But if you're going to build in, in any volume, you need raw materials. And um, there wasn't slab steel available in the United States. John Deere went to, to Pittsburgh um, in, in the late 1840s and ordered the first slab of cast steel ever rolled in the United States. So, you know, he was making sure that he was getting the materials he needed, but it took 10 years before he could place that order. And there were other business challenges. John Deere was a perfectionist. He was constantly tinkering to get the product just right. He didn't even take out a patent on his steel plow until 1864, 27 years after he first introduced it. And even then, the patent was not for the actual plow, but the process to manufacture it. But even though John Deere's plow was far superior to what came before, early sales numbers were weak. The biggest problem that the company faced was convincing farmers that they actually needed this new plow. Farmers are notoriously resistant to change, and despite the steel plow's obvious advantage, many of them 
were slow to embrace it. It was a challenge. And, and farmers are interesting. It's, you know, it's, it's the same today. You, you have these early adopters who, who just want to adopt the latest technology. And I think there was a lot of that. Then you have a lot of others who, who want to kind of go back to traditional methods. There was this concept that steel would poison the soil. And it's something that you see in, in publications and newspapers that we're not going to use this steel plow because it's going to do long-term environmental damage. And they would, would use this phrase, it's going to poison the soil. So you really had this learning curve um, to get over as well. So that was one of the, the hurdles that John Deere had to overcome. John Deere's steel plow ultimately helped turn the Midwest into America's breadbasket by opening up millions more acres of land for cultivation. But it wasn't the only innovation to transform American agriculture in the years before the Civil War. Not far from where Deere was manufacturing his plows in Moline, Illinois, another transplanted Easterner was developing a machine that would dramatically reduce the time it would take farmers to harvest their crops. In the 1830s, reaping grain required farmers to walk through their fields and cut down their crops using handheld scythes. It was a slow and tedious process, so time-consuming that farmers weren't able to seed all their available land because they knew they wouldn't be able to harvest their entire crop before winter. In 1831, 22-year-old Cyrus McCormick designed a mechanical reaper on his father's farm in Virginia. He patented his invention three years later. His promise to farmers was that his machine would pay for itself in one harvest. But as with John Deere's steel plow, many of his potential customers remained unconvinced. McCormick refused to give up. In 1847, he moved to Chicago and built a factory there to be closer to America's new agricultural frontier. McCormick took his mechanical reaper to the World's Fair in London in 1851, and there he won international acclaim. Skeptical Midwestern farmers finally started to come around, and sales went from 500 reapers in 1848 to more than 23,000 a decade later. Remarkably, Neil Dahlstrom says he's found no evidence in the John Deere Company archives that Deere and Cyrus McCormick actually ever met, despite living less than 200 miles from each other. But these two men and their two inventions transformed American agriculture in the years before the Civil War and turned the American farmer into the envy of the world. By the turn of the century, American farmers were producing more than enough food supply to satisfy the country's rapidly growing population and still have plenty left over for export. And that food was being produced at lower cost and by fewer and fewer farmers. Farm workers made up about half the American labor force in the 1880s. Forty years later, that percentage had shrunk to about a quarter. Today, it's less than 2%. Farms were becoming increasingly mechanized and commercialized. 
producing 100 bushels of wheat in 1890 required 40 to 50 hours of labor. In 1930, it took 15 to 20 hours. In 1990, three hours. We have to rethink agriculture as an entire system. It's not just one piece is broken. It's how do we design a system, both the growing system, the genetics, the automation, the economics, in a way that can actually grow and sustain the industry. That's George Kellerman. He's the chief operating officer and general partner at Yamaha Motive Ventures and Laboratory, the Silicon Valley venture capital arm of Yamaha Motors. After working at various tech companies, including Yahoo and Dell, George Kellerman came to Yamaha because the company was interested in investing in robotics, automation, and autonomous vehicles. But applying those technologies to agriculture wasn't on his or their horizon. When we started asking our own engineers, what are some areas that you think that we could apply this technology, they often would say, ah, we think this might be applicable to agriculture, but Yamaha is not really an agricultural company. It's not part of our core DNA. But then from that, went out and started talking to growers, actually looking at the real world conditions. And that's when it, it really, when you really like look below the covers, it is obvious to many of the growers, it's, it's a crisis. It's just, it hasn't made it into the mainstream and the consumers and the rest of the market are not aware of what the potential pending crisis is. Um, but for me, it was almost a calling. It was like, okay, this is something I could spend the rest of my life on. The crisis that George Kellerman and others see on the horizon is not that different than the one Thomas Malthus saw 200 years ago. Feeding our exploding population is a massive challenge. If you look globally, the amount of agricultural acreage is shrinking we're not creating new agricultural land. If anything, we're taking prime agricultural land and we're converting it into shopping centers and housing tracks. And this is a global phenomenon. The human population is growing. The demand for fresh, nutritious fruits and vegetables is only going to increase over time. So it's not just a simple solution to say, well, let's increase the yield per acre. We have to rethink the whole system. Look around any grocery store in any city in America today, and you'll see roughly the same thing. Rows and rows of waxy fruits and vegetables attempting to tantalize you with their freshness. But depending on where you live and what time of year it is, most of the so-called fresh produce we find in our grocery stores is actually days or even weeks old and may have traveled thousands of miles to get there. It's often doused with chemicals like ethylene or chlorine to preserve freshness. But even so, there might only be a few short days before that lettuce starts to wilt, those tomatoes begin to soften, and those bananas turn brown. But what if there was a way to shrink the 3,000-mile supply chain or even eliminated completely. We're in Hollis, a middle-class neighborhood of Queens, just outside of New York City. Towering over the tracks of the Long Island Railroad is a massive five-story, 60,000-square-foot building. In the early part of the 20th century, this building was the headquarters of the Ideal Toy Company, the largest doll-making company in the United States. 
popular dolls produced here included Betsy Wetsy, Shirley Temple, Patty Playpal, and Tiny Thumbelina. But now, inside this massive building, something entirely different is being manufactured. Lettuce. My name is Jen Freimark. I am one of the owners of Gotham Greens, and I also am the chief greenhouse officer. I oversee all the growing operations and greenhouse design for the new locations. Jen Freimark is a farmer who never leaves the city. She's one of a growing number of people who believes that urban agriculture will play an important role in the future of food. Gotham Greens, the company she co-founded in 2009, currently operates four giant hydroponic greenhouses, three in New York City and one in Chicago. Their proximity to major urban centers that they feed is the key to their success. So right now we're focused on all leafy greens. So we have a butterhead, a romaine, a medley mix, an iceberg. We have arugula, we have basil. We'll run some as wholesale cases, some as retail packaging in like the clamshells that you, you see in the grocery store. Right now, less than 1% of the more than 8 million pounds of lettuce grown in the United States every year is grown indoors. But that could change. Tomatoes were once exclusively an outdoor crop. Now about 70% are grown indoors. During the winter months, about 90% of leafy greens in American grocery stores come from the area around Yuma, Arizona, and California's Imperial Valley. About a 1,000 trucks leave Yuma every night for points north and east. Each truck carries a 1,000 boxes of produce. The water to grow all of that produce comes from the Colorado River. But a massive and prolonged drought is putting the long-term viability of America's salad bowl into question. Jen Freimark believes Gotham Green's hydroponic rooftop greenhouses can grow leafy greens more safely, more sustainably, more efficiently, and even more economically than in the field. With us having the extended growing season, we can do 30 times the production what a field grower can do. I mean, it really is an incredible amount of production. And then we also can be right next to where the customer is and, you know, deliver locally instead of having it ship you know, across the country and take seven or eight days to hit the store. This idea of urban agriculture has the potential to radically disrupt traditional farming in the U.S. and around the world putting food closer to people. It's estimated that by mid-century, about 70% of the world's population will be living in cities. The closer those urban dwellers can be to the source of their food, the less fossil fuel will have to be burned feeding them, the less food will be wasted, and the more safe and secure their food supply will be. But greenhouses aren't the only way people are now growing crops indoors. David Rosenberg is the co-founder and CEO of Aero Farms, which builds itself as the world's leader in vertical farming. Vertical farming is a relatively new industry. It's layer upon layer of growing plants 
we grow without sun, without soil. Arrow Farms currently operates nine vertical farms, including one inside a former steel mill in Newark, New Jersey. At 70,000 square feet, it's the largest vertical farm in the world. Inside are 250 different types of herbs and greens, growing in trays stacked 36 feet high and 80 feet across. Instead of soil, plants are grown on reusable cloth. And instead of sun, the plants get exposed to rows and rows of specialized LED lighting. Every stage of Aerofarm's process is done with the aim of producing as much food as possible while minimizing negative impact on the surrounding environment. Vertical farming enables local food production at scale. So here we're able to grow a tremendous amount of plants in a relatively small footprint compared to a farmer in the Northeast United States, our productivity is about 390 times higher than a field farmer. Vertical farming done at scale has the potential to address some of agriculture's most pressing challenges. It dramatically reduces food waste, uses about 95% less water than field farming, 50% less fertilizer, and no pesticides. That significantly reduces the risk of E. coli and other health problems caused by contaminated water. Vertical farming also requires far fewer workers than field farming. Aerofarms currently has about 130 employees. Only a handful of them have ever actually done conventional farm work. Among the rest are electrical and lighting engineers, plant physiologists, microbiologists, data scientists, and software programmers. David Rosenberg believes this coming together of agriculture and technology is just one indication that we may be on the cusp of a historic change. I mean, history will tell, but it does feel like it's historic. You have record-breaking amounts of money going to the space. Companies come into the space. We, we probably, as we speak, have 15 resumes from MIT alone. So it shows like the thought leaders, really smart young people are wanting to go in the space, which is a reverse chorus where for a long time it's been hard to consider where the future farmers are because it's typically been a, like a family business that's passed on generation to generation. And now we have young, smart people wanting to go to companies like Aero Farms. So it, it does, for a multitude of reasons, it does feel like this is a historical moment to help illustrate how technology and agriculture really can come together to solve broader problems. And the coming together of agriculture and technology is not just happening indoors. By and large, precision agriculture is using digital technologies to make precise measurements and then use digital technologies to do farming in a very, uh, we'll call it, precise way. That's Rob LeClaire, the CEO and co-founder of AgFunder, a Silicon Valley venture capital platform that invests in food and agriculture technologies. And among the technologies that are attracting a lot of attention these days are those that promote what has become known as precision farming. It starts 
with the acknowledgement that not every field and every crop grows the exact same way. And then it applies sophisticated hardware and software to ensure maximum efficiency. This sort of precision piece really starts with measurement and getting very, very fine-grained measurement and then using that data in some sort of actionable way to make better use of the resources that you have, um, recognizing that you don't have to you know, uh, plant in, uh, in a homogeneous way. You don't have to apply fertilizer in a, in a homogeneous way that you could, you could be very specific about how and when and where you apply things. All this optimization of field crops doesn't solve one other issue, which is that there are fewer farmers. In California, the nation's leading agricultural state, one of the biggest drivers of change is a rapidly shrinking supply of farm workers. George Kellerman believes there's only one solution to that problem. And contrary to what many people believe, it's not increased immigration or even higher pay. The solution is ultimately going to be automation and robotics. The demographic shift is very clear. Uh, workers are leaving agriculture. They're not coming into the field. The existing workers are aging out. And, and that trend is not going to change anytime soon. It's not, it's not a function of how much money they can make either. And so the solution, even to just maintain the current level of agricultural production, is going to require uh, robotics and automation. And robots are already making their way into farmers' fields in ways that most Americans can probably not even imagine. Take apples, for example. Billions are harvested every year. But the peak harvesting season lasts only around two months. Without workers to pick them, those apples will never get to market and will go to waste, which is why over the next few years, more and more of them will be picked by robots. Yeah, actually, there's a company that we invested in um, called Abundant Robotics, and they are developing a robot that can harvest apples uh, uh, autonomously. It uses computer vision systems to identify whether the apple is ripe, and if it is, then it moves a robotic arm into place, and it removes it actually with a vacuum. It, it, it sucks it off of the tree. It can work 24 hours a day. It doesn't get tired. It, you don't have to pay it overtime. A lot of the changes, I believe, are going to come in the form of the, the vision systems and the software that are running it, whether that's um, machine learning, artificial intelligence. It's not enough to just identify that's an apple or it's red, but is it ripe? Does it have disease? Is it misshapen? Um, is there a bruise or damage? Uh, then you start getting to higher levels of, of actually mimicking what a human would do in the field. Robots are one way of addressing the problem of food waste. If you can pick fruits and vegetables more quickly and efficiently, you'll increase the chances that the produce will end up in someone's stomach rather than in a landfill. According to the Department of Agriculture, about 40% of all the food grown in the U.S. never gets eaten. That's about 133 billion pounds of food wasted each year, or about $161 billion worth. The challenge over the next few decades is very clear. Increase food production to feed a global population that's expected to grow by more than 2 billion people. We'll get there by reducing food waste, improving distribution, and ensuring that the food we eat is safe. And precision farming, robots, urban agriculture, 
are just some of the areas that farmers, engineers, scientists, technologists, and investors are exploring to meet that challenge. We've been here before. In the 19th century, John Deere's steel plow and Cyrus McCormick's thresher helped overcome Thomas Malthus's dire prediction of mass death caused by a food supply that couldn't keep pace with population growth. In the 20th century, genetic engineering and chemical fertilizers helped prevent mass starvation in the developing world. But in the 21st century, we can't simply continue on the path we've been on and hope it all works out. We need to correct some of the mistakes of the past. We have to grow healthier, safer food, more sustainably, in a way that doesn't harm our air, land, and water. We have, perhaps, been too slow to recognize the magnitude and the urgency of the problem. But now, some very smart people, backed by some very big money, and armed with all the latest technology, are fully engaged in the struggle and striving for solutions. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. If you want more information about anything you've heard on today's show, you can head to our website at delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. This marks the end of our season. But fear not, we'll be back in the fall with all new episodes of Trailblazers. Until next season, thanks for listening.